Well, thankful to be with you all again as we continue to walk through the book of Genesis this Lord's Day. It's no surprise we'll be in the next chapter that we left off from last week, which will be Genesis chapter 27 this morning. Genesis chapter 27 this morning. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles around the room, that's on page 21. 21. Now, as you were turning there, let me remind us that the Bible is a brutally honest book. It's a brutally honest book. In fact, I would argue that it's the most honest book. Because when it comes to sin, the way that we treat God, the way that we tend to treat one another, the way that we do things to get what we desire most is on full display throughout the Bible. It doesn't hold back. The Bible does not sugarcoat anything. It calls it as it is. And today in Genesis 27, we're going to see an honest look at a very dysfunctional family. Very dysfunctional family. A family that's marked by favoritism, selfishness, lying, deception, sin. A family that, if we're being honest, is no different than many of our own. Though the circumstances may be different, we don't have maybe some of the same things that we'll see in Genesis 27. Nonetheless, there's still sin a part of any family. Because any family involves people, and people are sinful. But despite the sin, right, despite the struggle, once again, church, we're going to see God is not thwarted by it. We'll see a plan of God that amidst lies and deception that he still moves things according to his perfect plan for the world that's full of sinners. But sinners in whom he loves. In fact, I believe that we'll see God redeem the sin in Genesis 27, the lies, the deception to bring about our greatest need as people. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Truly, God can make straight lines with crooked sticks. And we would all say amen to that. But before we look at the passage, once again, I want to take a moment to pray for your heart, right, your minds. And as I do that, I ask that, would you, would you guys pray for me? And pray specifically for, for me that I would be able to preach this text that enriches your hope and your love for the Redeemer that would enrich your understanding of the good news of the gospel, and that we would all be able to walk out of here today loving you more than we first walked in, loving Jesus more than we first walked in. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's pray together. I'll pray over you. You pray for me. Well, Father, as we continue with Genesis this morning, God, I pray for every man and woman and child in this room and even those listening in, that you would give them hearts of understanding, that you would allow their eyes to see you, Jesus, that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are quickened to repent of sin, to turn and trust to you. And Lord, we know that it's only through your spirit that that's possible. So we pray that you would allow that to happen this morning. And I also want to pray for all our kiddos next door and the teachers that are leading them as they look at the same passage that we're looking at in here. Because no matter the, the size of the person, the need is the same. 
that we're in need of you, Lord. We're in need to place our face and trust in you and you alone. And so help us all today to do that. Maybe for the first time, but certainly for many of the Christians in this room to be reminded of where their hope is at. We pray all this in your good name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, Genesis 27 is another long chapter, a long chapter. And normally I do like to just read through the whole chapter before we start expositing it. And, and I'm tempted to do that now that you have these chairs that you can't fall asleep in. Not everyone. Not everyone, I know. You can always move over, Rena. Don't fall asleep. I got my eye on you. But I am going to break it up today. I'm just going to read certain sections as we go, highlighting them for our time in the Word. But let me start by reading just the first five verses, Genesis 27. It begins when saying, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. And bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt, game, hunt for game and bring it. We'll stop there. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. We're thankful for God's word. Now, throughout Genesis 27, we are going to be looking at this narrative, this account, really a drama of Isaac wanting to bless one of his sons with this covenantal blessing of sorts. But before we get into the details of that drama, we need to back up just a little bit so we understand what's the tension going on with this family? Why is this family dysfunctional in the first place? Well, if you look back at Genesis 25, and in particular look at verse 23, before the birth of these two twins, Jacob and Esau, Rebekah, their mom, learned from God that their lives, the lives of these two boys would be marked by conflict and strife. A conflict and strife that would not just be about them individually, but that these two boys essentially would represent nations. Their descendants would also be in strife amidst one another. But the end of verse 25, 23, we also learn that the elder brother shall serve the younger, which was not common practice in that day. The elder son would have much more rights, privileges than the younger son. But if you recall, when we learn that the elder son will serve the younger, or the younger will rule over the older, we saw that this was actually a display of God's sovereign election in the world. That God was choosing Jacob and not Esau. An election that wasn't based on merit or works, but simply according to the perfect will and knowledge of God the Father. Because as we know and as we have seen, Jacob was no golden boy, right? He was 
He had his issues. In fact, his name, instead of just heel grabber, could have meant cheater or trickster. Something that he does with Esau from the very beginning, where we saw that he basically leveraged Esau to sell him his birthright for simply a pot of stew. It's a trait that we'll see repeated in this chapter. But if the strife between the boys was not enough, we also know that things were not going well between the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Because it appears that they were choosing sides. There was favoritism amongst the children. Rebekah loved and favored Jacob. And Isaac loved and favored Esau. Right? It was a mess through and through, church. Things were not good as we go into Genesis 27. So there's tension. There's conflict. There's distrust between everybody involved. So now we find ourselves at the beginning of Genesis 27, many years later. It says in verse 1, it says that Isaac is old in age, at least 100 years old, maybe older. And verse 1 tells us that his eyes are dim and he cannot see. But what we will learn, church, is that Isaac's blindness was more than just physical. There was a spiritual component to his blindness. He could not see what he was supposed to see with God's promises. Because Isaac desires to pass on this blessing to Esau and not Jacob. Now, do we know if Isaac knew about the, the revelation that the older will serve the younger? We don't, we're not told. But regardless, Esau has demonstrated that he does not want to be head of the nation, right? He does not want to step in to the footsteps of his father. Esau was a man of the field. He didn't work in the family business. We saw last week that he married outside the family, showing that he didn't care about God's promise. He didn't care about this nation that was to grow and be distinct. But yet Isaac wants to bless Esau and not Jacob. And as we see here in just the opening lines, it appears that Isaac was driven not by these godly desires, not by these convictions in which were given to him just in the chapter before, but he was driven by his stomach. He was driven by just temporary satisfaction. He just wanted another good meal. His son is just like him, Esau. Right? Remember who sold his birthright for what? A meal. A meal. They were driven by temporary satisfaction of the things of this world. And so can we. Right? So can we. That we often make decisions not based on what would glorify God, not based on what God has actually commanded us to do and be a part of, to trust Him above all else, but... We often do things that just will give us the most satisfaction in the moment. That will make us feel good in that moment. And we don't really consider the moments that are to come. We just care about right here, right now. But what happens, church? What happens? Well, we learn in verse 5 that Rebecca heard about this conversation between Isaac and Esau. Heard about this conversation between them. 
And she calls her favorite son, Jacob, and they start to contrive this plan, this deceitful plan to trick Isaac so Jacob would get the blessing and not Esau. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. It says, Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. I command you, go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. So the deceitful plan's in place. They know this blessing from the father is coming, and Rebecca wants it to go to Jacob and not Esau. But notice that there's no mention of God from the voice of Rebecca at all. In fact, God seems very absent from this passage as a whole. But let's remember, though, that Rebecca did get this promise from God that the younger son is chosen, not the older son. Rebecca knows ultimately that Jacob is to be the, the continuation of the covenant, that he is the one that's supposed to bring about the next generation leading to Christ. But what is she doing here, church? She's taking it into her own hands. She knows the promises of God. She knows the goodness of God. But yet she wants it her way. She wants it on her timing. She wants it in all the ways that she desires. In many ways, she's telling Jacob, you don't have to obey the voice of God. Obey my voice and my plan. And if you recall, that sounds a lot like her predecessor, Sarah. You see, church, even though Rebecca knew the promises of God, she knew them, right? She knew them. She wanted it her way. She wanted it on her schedule. She wanted to accomplish it into the factors that she had control over. And if we look at the end of the chapter, end of verse, or chapter 27, it appears that even bitterness had crept into the heart of Rebecca where she's loathing life because of others, mentioning Esau's wives. It appears that she's no longer trusting God's plan or timing in this moment. She was concerned about the promise of God. Absolutely, I I, I believe that. But she wasn't in relation with the God of that promise. Right? She wanted God's stuff and not him. Which, unfortunately, we can all fall into that trap of wanting God's stuff, but not necessarily him. And so they come up with this plan to trick Isaac, right? Jacob would take advantage of his poor eyesight. He would go prepare a meal before Esau got back, right? He would dress the part. He would put on some of Isaac's clothes. They would take, make sure that he even felt like Esau or felt, take on Esau's clothes, felt like Esau, We've learned that Esau's birth, that he was just a hairy guy. And it says that they prepared some goats instead of wild game. And and so they had the plan in place. But Jacob did have his doubts, though, didn't he? If we were to keep reading, we would see that he's like, I I don't know about this, Mom. Like, I, I don't feel like Esau. I don't smell like Esau. Certainly Dad is going to recognize this, and instead of blessing me, he's going to curse me. 
But once again, in verse 13, we see Rebecca say, listen to my voice. Listen to me. Once again, notice the absence of prayer and the promises of God here. And here's where this can be very convicting and should be convicting for us all. Because what appears to be great love for her son, right? A great love for Jacob. She's actually doing the most unloving thing possible. And it's driving Jacob away from his identity in God and his, de- and his dependence on him. Whether you have little kids or you have grown kids or something in between. Whoever that you get to help lead and care for. We have to make sure that we are not posturing ourselves as the Savior. That look to me for everything. I'll handle it. What we end up doing is devoid them from ever being able to turn and trust God. But they move ahead with the plan, don't they? In verses 14 through 16, they prepare the meal. Right? Jacob gets the clothes on, he looks the part. Right? They put goat skin on Jacob's hand so he'd feel like Esau. And can we take a moment? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Rena. Take a moment. Like, if your skin is the only way for your, your skin to match your hairy brothers to tape goat skin to it, you are a hairy dude. Like, that is some next level, like, teen wolf status hairiness, right? And I'll, I'll be honest, I thought about how hairy Esau was way too much this week. That's not the point, but I did think about it quite a bit. Esau was a very hairy man, okay? But starting in verses 18 through 20, we see Jacob, he, he bought in to his mom's lies, right? He bought into the deception, deception himself. And so in verse 18, look at it with me. He says, so he went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Jacob here tells two lies, church. Two lies. The first lie is just a lie that he's Esau, not Jacob. It's a lie of deception. But the second lie is the reason that he's back so soon. He says, because the Lord has granted me success. Church, that's a blasphemous lie. That's a lie that uses the Lord's name in vain. Because what Jacob is doing is saying that God is in something and approving something and doing something that he's not. And we have to take that very seriously. To not say that God is in support of something that he's not. And here's why that's important, church. And here's why I want to point out these verbal lies specifically. Because Jesus taught us in his earthly ministry that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here we're seeing really where Jacob is truly at. Right? This promised son is no golden boy. 
his own heart is marked by lies and deceitfulness himself. And even though he won't be cursed by Isaac here, what Jacob does, though, is through this sin brings on the curse of judgment against a father that's far greater than Isaac from a heavenly father. But yet, as we'll see, it's a curse that one day will not be borne by Jacob, but by somebody else that will take on the penalty of that curse. But let's keep looking. Because despite these lies, right, despite this deception, and even the uncertainty of Isaac himself, right, he clarifies, are you sure you're my son? Are you sure you're Esau? He wasn't as fooled as easily. Remember, Isaac was, he was a well-respected man. Just in the last chapter, we saw him interacting and negotiating with other kings and nations. He was a powerful man, well-spoken, had a critical mind. But yet he is deceived. And starting in verse 27, we see that he does give Isaac, or Isaac does give Jacob the blessing. Let me, let's look at this, this blessing, starting in verse 27. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now remember, Jacob had already stolen the birthright. right? And the birthright would have been the, the material inheritance that he would have gotten once his dad had died. So if Jacob had already gotten that birthright blessing, what's so important about a verbal blessing from Isaac? Well, in many ways, as we saw in the blessing, it's showing who will continue the Abrahamic covenant. Who will be the son of promise? Because we see here in the blessing the promise of land and provision. We also see the promise of rule and blessing across nations and peoples. And we even see the protection of cursing and blessing to the other nations around them. Cursed are those who be cursed, and God will bless those who bless you. You see, it's all, it's very reflective of the Abrahamic covenant that was given to his grandpa. So, but why? But isn't the Abrahamic covenant, isn't that from God? and not from Isaac. Does Isaac really have control of who the promised son is? And ultimately, it's no. As we've seen, it's God is the one who initiates covenant. God is the one who chooses. Because ultimately, this blessing and choosing was already done by God before Jacob and Esau were even on the scene. You see, Jacob was not receiving anything in which God had already not promised to him. See, Jacob all along, was going to receive the covenant blessing. Now, how would that have come about if this whole drama didn't happen? I don't know. We're not told that. But to be clear, God in no way here is justifying the means of Jacob. 
right? The ends do not justify the means. Because really, this is an act of deception. This is lying. This is sinful. This is taking the Lord's name in vain, as we'll see later codified in the Ten Commandments. You see, Jacob didn't gain anything from this trickery. He didn't gain anything that he didn't already have in God here. But he did lose a whole bunch, church. And that's what sin does. See, it promises to give you something that you already have in him or you already have in God. That's what sin does. It promises if you do this, if you give into this, if you act this way, if you follow me here, I will give you something that you think you don't already have. But the truth of the matter, church, is everything we could ever want or need we have in Christ. And sin is trying to trick you to think that you need to go somewhere else for it. And as a result of this, Jacob loses a whole lot. Right? The relationship between him and his father is fractured. Esau would seek to kill him, we see later on in this chapter. Right? Jacob would have to flee home to spare his own life. And most likely, Rebekah, right? the mom who wants to do all of this for her son, because of this event, likely would have ne- will never see her son again. Because Jacob has to flee. And there's nothing in Scripture that says that they ever saw each other again. You see, sin, this is why we need to take sin so seriously, church. Sin always causes more destruction and more pain than we initially think it will. Always. It will always do more harm than just that moment. I think we should often pray when we're tempted to sin, because we all are. We pray that God would give us the wisdom to see the destruction of that sin far more than just a moment that we're tempted. Now, if we continue with our narrative, looking at verses 30 through 38, we see the return of Esau, right? Jacob had gotten the blessing and he quickly got out of there because he knew that Esau was coming in. And he gets out of there in the nick of time. And quickly Isaac realizes that he's been duped. Esau realizes that once again his brother has cheated him. It says in verse 33 that Isaac trembled in anger. He was so mad. In verse 34 it says Isaac cries with these loud cries of bitterness. Right? What's often projected as this outdoorsy, super masculine guy is weeping in front of his dad. He's begging Isaac to bless him, right? He's begging that Isaac do something about this blessing that he wanted. And Isaac says he can't take it back. What has been said has been said and it's done. And all that Isaac can do, if we look at verses 39 through 40, is really give out an anti-blessing of sorts. Almost the exact opposite of what was given to Jacob. Look at verse 39 through 40. It says, Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. 
By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Church, ultimately this is a prophetic word that comes to Esau that we'll see come true in the chapters to come. Where strife and anger and separation would, would really describe much of Esau's life. And if we were to look at the end of the chapter, how it all ends in this moment today is Esau really begins to spiral out of control. So fueled with rage and anger, he desires to kill Jacob. Rebekah gets word of this and tells Jacob that he has to flee, and that's what he does. He flees from the land, sending both Jacob and Esau to some very dark places. Very dark places, as we'll see in the chapters to come. And what's the most heartbreaking reality of this is Rebecca's heart is in no better place at the end of the chapter than it was at the beginning. Lies, deception, dysfunction. The Bible is a very brutally honest book, church. And it's at this point, I think we must ask the question, where is God in all of this? Right? Besides a few mentions of, of that God is blessing something that he's not blessing, there's no mention. What is God up to in this? Right? Why would he allow such evil? Why would he allow such heartache to happen to the very people in which he has chosen to follow him and his promises? What is God doing? Well, in one sense, church, we have to remember that all the actions of the characters involved here, right, all the actions of Jacob and Esau, Rebekah and Isaac, came from them choosing someone or something to be their God rather than God himself. As important as the promise and the goodness of God was to them, they were choosing sin. Because you cannot worship God and sin at the same time. Their sin had led them there. Their sin were choices of evil. They meant evil by their choices. But here's what we know about God and the choices of evil by men is that God always means them for good and always uses them for his ultimate purposes. That even through the muck and the mire of sin and lies and deception, God had a plan. God had a plan to bring about a promised seed. A plan to build a nation that would lead to Jesus Christ. So we have to remember who the original audience was here, right? These former Egyptian slaves as they're wandering in the wilderness wondering, what is God up to? They're seeing once again that God was moving all these details for his ultimate plan and purposes. And so even them, as they're wondering, God, what are you up to right now? They can look back on the works of God and go, well, he was faithful then. He used evil then. He can even use the evil in our days for his purposes. What we intend for evil, he intends for good. Even when there's no hope under the sun, church, we have to remember that there's someone above the sun as the book of Ecclesiastes rightly points out. There's always a God in control. Even when it seems like maybe a family situation 
feels like it's unbearable and it will never get fixed, right? What has been said, what has been done cannot seem being redeemed at all. Now, I don't know about every family situation and all the details, but I do know that God is always in control of it and that you can trust him in that. Maybe you won't see what you want to see in the timing that you want to see it, but you can trust that his timing is better than yours. Because although Jacob didn't deserve the blessing, right, didn't deserve to be the promised son, Jacob's family line would lead to the promised son of Jesus. So that's one way that we can look about, at this. Where is God in Genesis 27? But I think there's also another, excuse me, pointed thing that we can look at in Genesis 27. And really we can do this only from our advantage on this side of the cross as we can look back at Genesis 27 as Christians and going, what was God up to? What, are, what were some things going on in this narrative that should give us hope. I think there is something in this story that's pointing to something far greater. Because like Jacob, who was sinful, right? A liar, deceitful, and in himself did not deserve the blessing of a father. We too, church, have many of the same characteristics of Jacob. We've all sinned. We've all lied. We've all deceived We've all tried to present ourselves as something that we're simply not. Often to get something that we don't deserve. Our sin, too, deserves curse and not the blessing of a father. And the Bible tells us that because of that reality, we are in need of something better. We're actually in need of the clothes of somebody else. We're in need of clothes of righteousness, ones that we don't have ourselves. Let me show you this Old Testament prophecy about this need from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61.10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Church, do you see it? Do you see how Genesis 27 is whispering something greater that is to come? Because instead of us trying to deceive our way of receiving a blessing from the Father, instead of trying to steal and wear something that doesn't belong to us, Scripture says that we have an elder brother in Jesus. who We don't steal his clothes, but he rather gives us his clothes. He gives us his righteousness. He says, you don't have this yourself, but I do. I've lived a perfect life. And so he clothes us with his righteousness, and he takes on the very curse that we are supposed to have. He gets what we deserved, and we get what he deserved. And he did it with joy, right? Jesus wasn't tricked into going to the cross. Hebrews tells us it was a joy set before him that he went to the cross. He says that no one is making me lay my life down, but I lay it down on my own accord. And because of Jesus and his righteousness, right, his clothes of righteousness, that's how the Bible describes it. We get the blessing of God the Father. And it wasn't because God the Father is duped 
into seeing something that we're not and saying that we are clean and that we are pure because he's looking at us and seeing his son and saying that he has taken your place. So I am going to give you what my son deserves and I'm going to give my son what you deserve. You see how Genesis 27, it's whispering something far greater. It's why Paul in the book of Galatians reminds Christians to put on Christ. To put on Christ. Now, what does that mean? What are you talking about, Paul? Well, he's not talking about, right, physical clothes. He's not saying go try to wear the physical garments of Jesus. But he's talking in a spiritual sense that you put on Christ. You remember that who you are, what has been given to you, and that's the righteousness and assurance that has come through Jesus. He's saying, put on that, Christian. Remind yourself of that reality. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we put on Christ? Well, then we live with that reality in mind. We live a life in the reality that we have been saved from the sin and the curse, which we rightly deserved, but yet was handed to another. You live your life not to get something, but you live your life because you've give, been given something already. See, that's the hope of the gospel. That's why Christianity is so scandalous to every other religion. Because every other religion is telling you, go do this. And it's only Christianity that says, look at what Christ has done. And if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you're just not quite sure where you're at, where you're, at. you're still just kind of checking things out, and I and I applaud your courage to be even be in here today. But I do want to encourage you to see that your sin in and of yourself only leads to damnation and condemnation. That it, there's a real curse of judgment. God, who is a just judge, does not let sin go unpunished. But Jesus graciously, church, has these clothes of righteousness, right? This perfect life. And that when you believe and you trust that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you believe that that Savior is Jesus Christ, it says that you are then sealed, covered with the robes of Christ himself. That's why if you read the book of Revelation, church, you'll notice all the Christians are wearing white robes. How'd they get those? Well, what John is describing symbolically is what we have spiritually right now. That we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so I would encourage anybody in this room who hasn't to place your faith and trust in him and him alone. That's the type of God that we have. The one who willingly gave us what we did not deserve. Why? Well, John 3, 16, that famous verse tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's out of the love for sinners like you and I and for the glory of his name. That's the God that we worship today, church. That's the God of Genesis 27. What a God he is. Let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, as we end our time in Genesis this morning, God, I pray that you 
continue just to use your promises and your gospel to prick the hearts of all of us.